Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. As you mentioned last week, John, you were visible, sorta, kinda, if you knew exactly where to look, during <laughs> Episode 7 of The Last Dance. Now the 10-episode docuseries has finished airing, and I have to ask, because you've made it known that you weren't the biggest fan of Michael Jordan as a person— were you one of the five men who showed up at Michael's hotel room to deliver his poison pizza in Salt Lake City? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's funny, uh, the attention that it's gotten. Uh, one of the rare cases where I think the sort of the throwaway meme of the series is particularly interesting because the entire scenario has, has confused a lot of people who said to me, you got to be kidding me. You can't find a, you know, a decent restaurant at, you know, 10 o'clock at night in Salt Lake City or whatever. Uh, but actually, you know, having been there every year back then. Um, the legitimate part of the story is as an annual visitor there, mostly for Nets games, it, it's true it was difficult to find any food or drink downtown after 9 p.m. You know, mm. if New York City is a city that never sleeps, Salt Lake City was a city that slept too much. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> you, you couldn't find anything, nowhere to go, food, drink, nothing. Um, also true, every team, as well as us beat writers, we all stayed at the same Marriott Hotel, and everyone in town knew it. So that's that's an issue. Um and it's quite possible, Stan, that after 10 p.m., the Pizza Hut down the street was the last best hope. I mean, which for those of us who live in the Northeast like we do is almost as dystopian a hell as the one we're living in right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what it is what it is. So if a late night order comes in from that hotel when a visiting team is in town, the odds of it being from a visiting NBA athlete are pretty high. I mean, the traveling salesman was a regular stop at Salt Lake City. They know better than to manage their uh, dining expectation times to to think they can get something you know late at night. So it's probably a basketball player. So that part is all more legitimate than most people would think at the time. Um, but the idea the delivery guys knew it was Jordan, who like every pro athlete even then checked in under an assumed name. Right. And that in that era they could assemble five people to show up at the door, which would only serve to undermine the supposed scheme. Right. Is preposterous. I mean, why would any any food place of all at any time ever have five people show up if you're trying to pull something off. So that part is ridiculous. Um, plus, you know, jazz fans were among the most rabid in the league back then. Amazingly excited, fired up, you know, great crowd, great atmosphere in the arena, but poisoning food, even if they knew how to do that, that's like east of the Mississippi River stuff and probably way east, you know. <laughs> so the last question then is for me, you know, why did Jordan invent this tale? I mean, I haven't figured that out yet, but it's always about Michael. So that's that's the clue. Um, <laughs> so for investigators, I would think about why a new food, food poisoning angle would top the epic Michael beat the flu to win angle, which is pretty epic on its own. I mean, I'm thinking maybe if Michael had an edge past the Knicks so many times, he had a much more plausible claim in the tank after all these years to, to try to lay this dubious claim against Jazz fans instead because he wanted to pin on somebody, but I think he, he picked a poor target. Yeah, it's weird. The, the 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 details of the story definitely do not hold up to scrutiny. Uh, I, I guess I could dispute the, you know you, you saying that uh, it's more of an east of the Mississippi thing. All it takes is is one bad apple, or you know, to to hatch a scheme like this. It's not like there are no no bad people anywhere in Salt Lake City. Um, and I, I get, you know, it could be. I could see five people showing up on a not to not planning to carry out a poison scheme, but just yeah. sort of a hey, the Bulls are in town. I think that there's a decent chance this might be Jordan. You want to come along and, and see if we can get a look in Jordan's room. <laughs> so that part could be possible. But then the the point at which Jordan's buddies and protectors 
are sort of sensing something amiss, but still hand him the pizza anyway. The way that they tell the story, that that yeah. just seems not to make much sense the night before a game that, boy, these suspicious looking guys showed up to deliver our pizza and we just handed it right off to MJ and he ate the whole thing. Um, I don't know. It, I, it's it's strange. If, if it was food poisoning and not the flu, then what was the benefit in Jordan or, or Bulls PR or whoever at the time saying he had the flu instead of food poisoning? Is there some stigma attached to food poisoning? <laughs> I, I I don't know. It's it's. It's very weird, but it is a telling sign about the power of this documentary that for 23 years it was known as the flu game, and <laughs> overnight it becomes the pizza game. Um, I will say this, as a lactose intolerant individual, <laughs> Michael Jordan discussing eating pizza and being in the fetal position on the bathroom floor afterward, that's the most empathy <laughs> that I felt for him in the whole and, documentary. Oh, so now he's every man. That's maybe that's <laughs> that's what he's looking for. Who knows? I guess so. But then he's not every man because uh, if, if he and I were equals for for, for a moment there, we that that ended when he went out and scored 38 in the finals game the next day. You didn't, you didn't pull that off the next day. I, I, I have so. never done that uh, immediately after a cheese-induced stomach attack. No, <laughs> um, I wanted to just offer a quick uh, note on the on the documentary all in all before we get uh, get into the real show. Here is you know a lot of people loved it. Uh, a lot of people were critical of the way that Jordan clearly had almost complete editorial control and so it wasn't an unbiased look at everything but i just want to give the director and the editors credit for weaving all the stories and timelines together in a way that kept it moving and entertaining and all made narrative sense you know i've produced audio documentaries which is many degrees less complicated and they weren't 10 hours long with uh you know 20 different people's stories to tell but even with that little bit of experience working in this format i have a sense of how challenging it can be and so i just want to give jason hair and his team a lot of credit for that for the way they put the story together it takes a lot of time organization and and understanding of storytelling to do what they did as well as they did, uh, other, other, other than the fact that they really needed to ask a follow-up question or two about the nonsensical pizza story. Yeah, I, I must say, I, you know, I thought the documentary was fantastic. And the idea of going like from, you know, his early days into the 90, 1997, 98 season and back and forth and back mm -hmm. and forth. That's the kind of thing. I'm a traditional old school guy, meat and potatoes, and I'm going to hate that. I, I just want to go in a, in a linear sequence. And there are people who complained about the back and forth. But uh, for me, I, I, you know, for whatever reason, I thought it was great. So, yeah, I mean, I, the their limitations are are a given. We already knew that going in, and they're mm -hmm. there, and they're they're fair uh, criticisms. But uh, overall, I, I thought it was a tremendously produced show, and uh, I, I miss it already. Yep, <laughs> yeah, we need something to, to fill our, our Sunday nights. But uh, at least uh, we have this podcast to fill everybody's uh, Thursday <laughs> afternoons. So thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number ninety-two of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous ninety-one episodes, they're all available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And by the way. Spotify. If you want to throw Joe Rogan money at us in exchange for exclusive distribution rights, we'll consider listening to your pitch. I actually got that cultural uh, relevant uh, pitch there, so that's there good. Go. Uh, I'm usually lost in the, in the cloud there. Um, and coming up a little later on the show, we're going to be joined by Victor Rocha. He's the president of Victor Strategies and the owner of and editor of Pachanga.net, uh, maybe the most famous person in the entire uh, tribal gaming uh, world of the United States. And uh, he's going to drill down on such topics as casino reopening openings and sports betting possibilities in California uh, and elsewhere. But um, first, it's been a eh, semi-busy news week in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. 
Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. Another week, another April revenue report to analyze, and this week it's Pennsylvania, where the Gaming Control Board announced its numbers on Monday. As was the case in New Jersey, online casino gaming had a record month, up 73% month over month to $43.1 million in revenue, although still far short of the $80 million that New Jersey posted. PA did top Jersey in tax revenue, however, and Pennsylvania also won narrowly in poker revenue, despite having just one site, uh, with PokerStars PA scoring $5.3 million and all three New Jersey sites combining for $5.1 million. The sports betting numbers, as expected in a world with limited sports options, were way down, with handle dropping 65% from the previous month to just $46 million. And this one is very interesting to compare to New Jersey because we wondered how badly Pennsylvania sports betting would suffer from the state not allowing bets on the NFL draft. Well, in New Jersey, handle for April was $55 million, which was down 70% from the month before. So I guess NFL draft betting didn't make a huge difference, and hmm. Pennsylvania isn't much worse off with just table tennis, Belarus soccer, etc. cetera. Uh, John, any thoughts on Pennsylvania's numbers relative to New Jersey? or just relative to your expectations? And is Pennsylvania maybe closer than we realize to becoming the number one sports betting handle state when the full slate of sports returns? Yeah, I mean, Eric, I've been fascinated for a couple of years now on the angle of the Pennsylvania gambling tax rates versus New Jersey tax rates. You know, the yeah. ante to get into Pennsylvania gaming and the annual tax rates really are brutal compared to New Jersey and Nevada, for that matter. Um, so New Jersey and Nevada are beloved by the legal regulated gaming industry, and rightly so for many reasons. OK, but when Pennsylvania's listed its terms of engagement, basically, I thought they had overbid, if I may mm-hmm. say so. But yeah. I want to see the results. You know, I mean, if they get people to buy in anyway, then they win. And if they don't, then they lose. It's it's uh, there's no no point in, uh, you know, guaranteeing anything. Let's see what happens. Well, you know, Pennsylvania's winning, as I think Charlie Charlie Sheen said in what, the 1970s or so. <laughs> it's, oh, yeah. Winning. Not quite that long ago. But OK, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seemed like it. But um, he's still around too. go figure that uh, the overbet one on, on him on many <laughs> offshore books, I think. But um, so the, the Jersey model for 20 years and it's had some success was to keep gaming taxes low, uh, incentivize casinos to be more elaborate, produce far more jobs and this other tax revenue that way. You know, it's a it's a good economic model on, on paper. But now it's COVID-19 and Pennsylvania's model is winning the day, not only now, but maybe for years, you know, uh, because uh, online and high taxes seem to be the way to go. Mm-hmm. But don't cry for New Jersey. They have robust online gaming and, and a tax rate, by the way, it's about double their low, really low brick and mortar rate. So, mm-hmm. you know, the biggest losers are the states like New York, who currently have no mobile casino, no mobile sports betting revenue. So they're getting zero. Uh, you know, the harness racing folks would honestly announce that uh, New York has uh, broke stride, I think is the term. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, in in our next story coming up, we will uh, drill down on one of those states that is is getting zero currently. Uh, but so, yeah, Pennsylvania New, and New Jersey, both way better off than uh, pretty much anyone else. Um, yeah. I'm looking at the online casino numbers and uh, it, it's kind of like you said about the early years in New Jersey that how it took time for the word to get out there that this is available and it's legal. Mm-hmm. The pandemic has accelerated it considerably. Yeah. 
Um, but still, the fact that Pennsylvania's casino revenue was about half of New Jersey's shows there's still a lot of marketing and education mm-hmm. to be done in Pennsylvania. Uh, and there's still also a lot to be done in terms of adding more games and better games and live dealer games. You know, the options in, in Pennsylvania are still fairly limited. Um, so I, I think, you know, whereas I said last week that that $80 million in a month for New Jersey might be where it plateaus. I would say Pennsylvania probably still has room for growth. We're going to see that number keep ticking up. Um, the sports betting surprised me a little. Uh, you know, the the lack of impact of not having NFL draft betting. That, that certainly surprised me. Uh, I would have expected the Pennsylvania handle was headed for like 20 to $30 million once we saw that New Jersey did $55 million. Um, so I, I do take this as a sign that the... Pennsylvania sports betting market, the pool of players is growing rapidly. And I would guess that Pennsylvania handle is going to surpass New Jersey handle by this fall. You know, Pennsylvania has all the same online sports books pretty much except points bet. Um, It has the Eagles and Steelers who on paper should be better than the Giants and Jets. I think during football season, Pennsylvania is likely to pass New Jersey. And, uh, you know, obviously that then there's Nevada to consider, but with Vegas casinos, probably not attracting anywhere near the usual complement of guests this fall. Uh, I would expect both states will, will beat Nevada as well. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of I'm watching too many of these Jurassic Park movies on my, uh, on our layoff here, but uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think of New Jersey as this like incredibly nimble, clever dinosaur that, you know, uh, figures every, every, Every edge they can get, they, they have. So they're really good at what they do. And Pennsylvania's is like that big lumbering you know, T-Rex that kind of stumbles along, doesn't know where it's going, isn't really paying attention, you know, time of day or anything else. But they've got these huge jaws. So then they look down and they see even a smaller dinosaur like New Jersey that's so clever and they just gobble them up. So uh, <laughs> Pennsylvania doesn't know exactly what it's doing yet, but their business model turns out to be for this environment – I think just about perfect. And so even though they don't have it all figured out yet, so they're not getting quite the uh, volume of, of, of dinner that they should get, um, they're going to get there because they're, they, whether they stumble into it or not, it doesn't matter. Um, their, their model is probably the best for this environment. I like that, uh, the dinosaur analogy. Now, we just need to figure out which state is the one that, that spits the acidic stuff uh, that melts. Uh, <laughs> is, is, it, is it Newman who, uh, from Seinfeld who got the spit? Yes, no, or was it a uh, different, no, uh, different character who got, a, who got his face melted by the spit? I haven't seen it in a while. But, uh, yes, Newman. Newman, Newman was he was in it, but I couldn't remember if that's how he if that's how he uh, how he bit it. But uh, in any case, some somewhere out there, there's a state that uh, works as the spitting dinosaur in this analogy. <laughs> we'll figure that out by next episode, I'm sure. Um, for our next story here, we go to Michigan, uh, a state that unfortunately had no April online gaming numbers to report in order to keep up with New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Um, but the Michigan Gaming Control Board is making an effort to change that, as listeners probably know. Online casino, poker, and sports betting have been legalized in Michigan. It's just a matter of getting them up and running. And while the MGCB indicated prior to the pandemic that these online games would launch no earlier than the first quarter of 2021, now the state is going into a bit of a hurry-up offense, shooting to get some of the mobile gaming started in 2020. The licensing process has started, and Representative Brant Iden told me a couple of weeks ago that the timeline was being accelerated, although, as Brian Pempis wrote on MIBets.com, Iden also said he expects some casinos will be reluctant to allow the accelerated timeline because they plan to take their time building out their online products. Then again, everybody in the state needs revenue as soon as possible. 
So, John, if I'm setting a line of December 1st, 2020, are you going over or under for the first legal online gaming site launching in Michigan? Uh, I'm, I'm under. I'm always the under on online gaming. You know, New Jersey shocked the industry in 2013 by going like pillar to post in six months to launch online casino gaming. Mm-hmm. Um, ever the nimble dinosaur, I might say. <laughs> right. Um, but and and other states like Michigan be wise to figure out how do they do it. They they went from nothing. They, there was no no uh, no model to go from, and they they pulled it off. And and to say it shocked everybody, but. I don't know that everybody is, is paying enough attention to Jersey. So, you know, it sounds like the overbet should win all these years later. But for whatever reason, the under keeps coming in. So I'm under December 1st. So this is where we get into the confusion of what's over and what's under when you're talking. <laughs> so you're saying later than December later. 1st when you take later, the under. Later. Okay. Nobody, nobody is. is <laughs> I should have said I should have said sooner or later instead of over or under. I just created yes. unnecessary confusion. OK. Yeah. Nobody is beating the six month uh, timeline. New Jersey pulled off. Uh in in you know in a vacuum uh so somebody else should be able to do it in six months if they did it from zero uh and yet i bet nobody does no state including michigan okay i i I was thinking about um you know whether whether sports betting and online sports betting in particular is going to be sort of a, a rush product um because, you know, I, a lot of people will be reluctant to enter a casino anytime in 2020, even if they're open in the fall. I guess it's it's a little less urgent to get mobile sports betting going during football season because at least the casinos will be there. Those sports books in Michigan will be there. Um, if this was a state like Tennessee, where the only possible way to place a sports bet is online, I would be a little more confident of, of Michigan beating that uh, December 1st line and getting it done before then. So that might be an exception to uh, to, to what you were just saying, that maybe mm-hmm. Tennessee gets it gets it moving before December 1st. They have been talking all along about having it ready by football season, although they they almost don't count because they were supposed to launch last summer and, and have been dragging it out since then. So it, it would hardly count as getting it done quickly. Um, but just in terms of online casino and online poker, you know, th- those operators uh, that are going to be moving into Michigan, they should know that this is a golden opportunity to get customers who are stuck at home with time on their hands. I, w- I would think that they would all be wanting to get on board with an accelerated timeline. But, you know, the, it, 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 you're right that most states it takes a long time to get through all the bureaucratic business and, and get all the I's dotted and T's crossed. And, you know, Pennsylvania is a perfect example of how slowly things move there. Um, Of course, we've said this before, but it's worth repeating. This wouldn't be a conversation if the previous governor hadn't vetoed the bill on his way out the door and delayed the whole thing by a year. Online sports betting, casino and poker would all be up and running in Michigan right now. So that's uh, that's really a shame. Well, and and that's a that's an abstract issue i think that you know an outgoing governor of any stripe um vetoing something that the legislator wanted uh when he's a lame he or she is a lame duck is is uh you know what's the point of that i mean the yeah. you know, whatever has been decided has been decided and kind of get out of the way and let the new people you know uh, move on yeah well unfortunately uh, he didn't have he didn't share your attitude on that so <laughs> michigan does not currently have those things we'll see how their hurry up offense goes um for our third story we will talk about this subject more with victor rocha uh, but for now let's have our own conversation about the reopening of casinos across the country as people in various corners push for ways to restart the economy or return to normalcy. Uh, Casinos half full with people spaced six feet apart and wearing masks isn't quite my idea of normal or normalcy, but it's what's starting to happen. And as of this recording, 
the U.S. just hit the 100 mark in terms of casinos allowing customers. The open casinos are spread all around the country, but most heavily concentrated in the Northwest, lots of them in Washington State, and in the South, in states like Oklahoma and Louisiana. Meanwhile, in Nevada, we don't have a reopening date yet, although there are rumblings that we're getting close, and a gaming control board workshop next Tuesday might provide some answers. In your home state of New Jersey, the governor is opening beaches this weekend, so Atlantic City casinos might not be far behind. In my home state of Pennsylvania, the PGCB this week released 10 pages of guidelines requiring masks and hand sanitizer, no poker or valet parking at first. As I said, we'll be covering this with Victor as well in a few minutes, but let me get your thoughts, John. Are you surprised we're already at 100? How soon might Vegas have open casinos? And do you anticipate another wave of closings at some point, that some of these casinos will be open for a few weeks and have to shut their doors again as COVID levels in their regions increase? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the most interesting things to me about Las Vegas is that um, some casinos had started charging for parking, which is like an absolute outrage to people who go to Las Vegas. They spend right. a lot of money, you know, the rooms, the, all the different taxes and everything else. They deal with it. And, and it's only a, a symbolic thing. You pay five or ten bucks for parking, but it just outrages people. So they're eliminating that because if there's another transaction that you don't need to have. Just let people drive in, drive out. And um, so that's going to be a plus. Um, but, you know, as a member of the most despised class of people in America these days, uh, which are moderates, um, I'll try my <laughs> wildest guesses on your on your, your observations. Um I've been pleasantly surprised at recent numbers in the more aggressive reopening states. Um, unlike what many are claiming right now, it's still too soon to tell for sure, but it's possible, very possible, that wearing masks, social distancing, and regular hand washing is really, really effective to get things open, not to nor the old normal, but to do something. And it's too soon to tell if warmer weather, which leads to more outdoor activity in the Northeast and Midwest is going to help as much as some people think, but it might. So, you know, I, I'm pretty optimistic on not only how things go, but uh, avoiding a surge, at least until the fall or late fall. So, now, if anyone's dumb enough to take a journalist analysis and put a nickel in it, based on that, you know, as they say, a fool and his nickel are soon parted. But that's my take. Well, I don't share your optimism about the warm weather. Uh, but as you said, we won't know until we know. Uh, but I definitely am with you on the, the mask wearing and the sort of early returns on, on that. And it's just interesting how the... Um, how it's sort of not 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 necessarily the science of it, but the communicating of of what to do of it all has has improved as we've learned more and observed more. And I just remember when the uh, outbreak was first starting, I feel like we were all much more paranoid about touching surfaces, that it was going to spread from somebody having touched something and then you touching yeah. it and then you touching your face and and all that. And at some point it shifted more into, oh, no, this is mostly about breathing, coughing, sneezing. And so you wear the mask and it goes a long way. Um, so, yeah, I, I certainly share your attitude on that, that if everyone is wearing the masks and keeping some distance from each other, um, we will hopefully avoid another massive outbreak. But with that said, I think a lot of these casinos will close again at some point. It'll be open, close, open, close for a while, maybe until there's a vaccine. But even so, it makes some sense from their perspective to 
make a little money and provide employment for a few weeks or a few months instead of not at all, even if they're anticipating that it's it's just temporary that they get to open back up. Um, I was looking at the, the Pennsylvania guidelines, and most of it made sense to somewhat limit the spread of the virus. But the one thing that seemed ridiculous to me is it requires that casino staff ask patrons as they enter whether they have fevers or have been in contact with people who are COVID-19 <laughs> positive. Who's bothering to go to the casino and then answer yes to those questions? Um, I, I think the casinos either have to do a mandatory temperature check or or decide not to. Um, but I don't see how asking people a question when they know that the wrong answer gets them turned away, accomplishes anything. Yeah, I'd like to picture that uh, customer going, "Well, you called my bluff. I thought I had, <laughs> I thought I had it here, but you, you got me. You know, you, you maybe turn my cards over and uh, I'm out of here. Yeah, that's probably not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically lo- losing at poker before you even get into the casino to, to lose some other way. Well, they're probably better off if if, if right. they could be out bluffed on that. Then right. <laughs> they have no no business being in the game anyway. Agreed. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. There are 989 casinos in the United States, and that number is split almost right down the middle between commercial establishments and tribal properties. This week in the interview segment, we will focus primarily on the latter, and we are joined now by Victor Rocha, who is the president of Victor Strategies, the owner and editor of Pachanga.net, the conference chairman for the National Indian Gaming Association, and a man who has been involved in the politics of Indian gaming since 1998. Victor, thank you for joining us on Gamble On. Thanks. Great to be here. Really appreciate it. So you're based in the L.A. area, and uh, your state, California, remains the holy grail of sports betting in the industry. Uh, But like several other large states, it's been slow to legalize sports betting. The reasons differ for each state. So help us understand what the roadblocks are in the Golden State. And is it possible for tribal casinos to add sports betting, even if the commercial side continues to stall out? Um, Well, you know, the first thing you know, to know about California is, is that the tribes have exclusivity for gaming in the state and it's constitutionally enshrined. And, uh, so that makes them, uh, uh, not just a player, but a gatekeeper, you know, and to go a little deeper than that, you know, to really, really understand it, 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 you have to understand tribal gaming, you have to understand tribal sovereignty and what that means. And, and the real big roadblock, is uh, mobile. The reason why is that when the tribes, um, you know, they've always had some form of gaming. It's it's a cultural uh, an issue with the tribes. You know, they they it's for since time immemorial, gambling or gaming as as we call it uh, has been something that they've always done. Um, and when the tribes started opening these little casinos back in the sixties and seventies, and you know, and they became a little more bigger and you know and and what happens is that you know tribal sovereignty and states rights uh begin to clash as always everything that rises must converge so the tribes long story short they uh, fought the state of california went all the way to supreme court and they got uh the right to have gambling uh the same as the state does so in california long story short um, the tribes won the right uh, through a ballot initiative in 1990, 
uh, eight and then changed the constitution in 2000 uh, that gave him exclusivity for gaming. So, and I know that's a long convoluted word, but there's, you know, you have to have context and, and understanding. So uh, when the tribes in California uh, got gaming legalized in 1998, and like I said, and, and then they changed the constitution, that gave him exclusivity for gaming. So, but that doesn't solve the main issue, which is when tribes uh, in court, uh, they won uh, um, the right to, to, to gamble, there was initiative immediately by the government to, to, to fence them in or also to put them back on the reservation, you could say. Mm. And this thing was called the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. And the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act said that the tribes can have gaming, but they can only do it on the reservation. And so that's been the rub all along, you know, and as soon as a bet is taken off the reservation, then it's no longer legal. And that's the rub with mobile and even online gaming. And that's what they've always fought. So they've always, and, and if you look right now in Michigan, what happened in Michigan, the tribes there are going to be doing uh, online gaming and mobile gaming, but that's because there was a deal with the state that says, okay, you can have it. So as long as it's legal in the state, then the tribes can do it. And right now online gaming is not legal in California. So until then, you know, the tribes can't participate. So the tribes are, the tribes have been waiting for the right opportunity. And until this quarantine happened, the, the tribes in California had, were actually doing a referendum to, to, to legalize sports betting. Now, like some of the other states, the tribes were going to do retail first and then dip their toe in and mobile would probably be down the road, probably, you know, depending on who you talk to, three to five years. So the tribes were on that path uh, in California until the quarantine happened. And then that stopped all person to person contact. And you can't have a referendum or ballot gathering without, you know, human being. But so you're, you're seems like you are have some degree of confidence that sports betting will come to California, even if uh, land based before mobile. But it seems like you're not confident that it'll be anytime too soon, that we're still looking at multiple years yeah, down the road. Listen, in February, I would have said yes. And then now, uh, well, look, at we're, in, we're towards the end of the month. I believe the signature gathering, uh, unless the tribes can put out a thousand people on the streets tomorrow to get, you know, I believe they had over a half. They needed like almost a million valid signatures. They had over half. I believe 600,000 was what I heard last time. Hmm. And they were confident that they were going to close that gap until the quarantine's done. You know, and so, so the answer is, is yes, it's going to be coming. Uh, this quarantine slowed everything down. And now uh, there is some legislation in the California legislature to legalize sports betting. Um, but we'll see. how. Yeah, so, I'll ask you, Victor, we're talking about the reopening of casinos. Uh, everybody wants to get going in some form or fashion as soon as it's safe. But I noticed that, you know, Washington State, Arizona, California, uh, it seems like most of the early jumpers here have been uh, out west. I mean, is that is there, and, and they're and tribal. Uh, so is there something about tribal casinos that make them a little bit more nimble so that they can get things done more efficiently? Or is it just, well, that's because they're out west and the, the geography basically sums it up so that uh, the less less impacted uh, portion of the country uh, is that the only reason that they got open sooner or is there something about tribal you know john it's it's it kind of ties back into what i just said about tribal sovereignty because the tribes are sovereign on on the reservations and you know if you've been following closely and i'm sure you've had you've seen a couple politicians jump in and say hey you can't do that and then the next day they're going well you know we were just suggesting it <laughs> you know and that's where the concept of tribal sovereignty comes in and that is an abstract concept for a lot of people 
But to answer your questions, you know, it depends where you're at. And well, you know, you know, John, it really is the root of this is, you know, tribal gaming provides revenue and supports tribal governments. And without that type of revenue, the it makes it difficult for the tribes to provide the social services that they provide to, to the tribes. And that's the difference between tribes, fundamentally between tribe, tribal gaming and commercial gaming. Other than that, when you walk into a casino, they feel the same, they look the same, you know, uh, other than, you know, you do feel the tribal element, uh, you feel, uh, you know, the tribes do share some of the culture and they do feel a little different, but basically they don't, you know what I mean? You get blindfolded and they feel exactly the same, except you can get cigarettes smoked usually because you can smoke on an Indian reservation. And that's a big difference. I mean, you can do it in Nevada. Uh, I forgot about Atlantic City, but most casinos you can't smoke and that's because tribal sovereignty. So with that same sovereignty is why tribes are opening a little sooner. But, you know, they are going above and beyond uh, the CDC guidelines because they have to. You know, they can't afford to mess this up because this is, this is the only thing that has ever worked for the tribes since, since Columbus arrived, man. You know, so it's that deep. It's that heavy. It's that real. You know, so that's why you're seeing the tribes are in a position where they, they have to do it. So they're doing everything they can. But, you know, I guarantee you uh, that casino that opened up in Redding, California, more people will be at your local Lowe's or uh, a Home Depot than will be at that Indian casino. You know, <laughs> right. and, and if you've been to a Home Depot or Lowe's, you know how many people are in those places. And it's insane. You know, you walk into this place and it's the same thing, except masks will be mandatory there'll be mandatory cleaning and there will be trained employees and that's a big issue right there too i don't know about you but i've seen these people that are supposed to be on the front line cleaning and i watched this girl with the rag go from handle to handle with the same rag and without spraying anything and i'm just like you know she would never work in a casino you know so i think that's where the trap where and i think commercial will have that same thing where that you have trained employees that are going to you know, want to make sure the environment clean, you know, the casinos are not going to want to kill their employees or kill their uh, uh, customers. So the tribes are kind of the canary in the coal mine in a sense, you know what I mean? They're on the front lines here. They're testing the strategies and the technologies. And I can tell you for a fact what my tribe was doing now, I, now what makes my take a little different is not only all that you know, running Pachunga.net for 20 something years of being the conference chairman for the National Gaming Association, I'm a tribal member for uh, uh, the Pechanga Banner, Los Senior Indians. And so my tribe is looking to open up on June 1st, and that's still a moving target. They're like, going, okay, we're going to wait a little bit. We'll see. And, you know, it isn't written in concrete yet. And they even say, absolutely, we're going to open it. Um, but one of the things that they showed us is that they were putting up those um, uh, partitions the plexiglass partitions that everybody else was putting up and they had the sneeze guards around the poker table and they had all that stuff. And then when it was done, they said, we decided against it. You know, it creates too many uh, surfaces to be contaminated that you already have. So for them, they would rather do separation. They would rather control the amount of people that come in, control the spaces that they're in and not unlike, and, and they will do a lot better than Home Depot. They will do a lot better the job than than, than your local uh, market. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's logical to go separation over these these barriers that really seem to 
they they just don't line up with the with the casino experience in, in any way and to have all these plexiglass barriers and and all that I, I think that makes sense but continuing on on just the subject of of these reopenings um a handful of card rooms in California either reopened this week or announced they will be reopening this week and most notably Towers Casino in Nevada County which became the first commercial casino to reopen in defiance of Governor Gavin Newsom's orders, although then reports came out late Tuesday night of the state DOJ raiding the card room and shutting it down. What's your take on the political fallout of casinos and card rooms attempting to open up like this? Could, could it hurt the gaming industry if Newsom starts to feel as if these operators are, are trying to show him up? The California card clubs are a mess. You know, for for Tower to do what they did in complete defiance of the governor, they're not sovereign. You know what I mean? They were told, and then they, what, sat nine people at a table, shoulder to shoulder, no gloves. And then the picture they 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 uh, uh, tweeted out was a guy sitting at the table drinking a beer with right. nobody wearing gloves. And, you know, they're definitely not cleaning the chips. And so, you know, that was a big F you to, to, to the governor, and they came and shut him down. You know what I mean? Um at least with the advantage of the card clubs being shut down is that there won't be any FinCEN violations, you know? Um, um, it's, that's a mess. You know what I mean? That's the kind of thing that is, I get it. Everybody is desperate to open up and it goes to the point of, of the tribes that are open up and they see the tribes, but none of the tribes are opening up the poker. You know what I mean? They're all going for slam machines just because we don't know that we can do poker safe yet. Nobody knows, you know, that what those guys did were definitely, I'm surprised I didn't see that mask that opens up and those are like eating through it. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. That's the only thing that was missing in that. But it reminded me of one of those things uh, uh, in Boys Life or Magazine or something where it's like, how many things are wrong in this picture? Right. Yeah, absolutely. You start <laughs> circling, like how many things are wrong in this picture? That's you know, funny. and so listen, those guys will become uh the scapegoat for the rest of the industry and the and and the real players and the good players and the people that really care about their customers will sit and wait it out you know what i mean and it doesn't mean the people who are who are opening early doesn't care about their customers but there is you know that's why they're not going with poker you know what i mean poker is that's the game that's the thing everybody is trying to figure out you know do you do in-game cleaning, do you know? But then, listen, you know, the rest of us in the industry, we're looking at this and we're saying, obviously, you're going to have to move to the digital version of the game. You're going to have to do more electronic tables. There is a solution about this. The thing is, behavioral issues. People like poker. That's what it's about. Sitting eye to eye and at some person and that's wearing sunglasses and a hoodie and a headphone, and it's hard to get that personal touch, you know? Right. Uh, when you're not facing them that way. So it, it's really about behavioral. You know, people, people don't, they like, just like concerts, right? You know, I'm a big concert goer. I'm a musician. Um, how does that happen? You know, tribes aren't doing, aren't doing concerts, you know? Um, so it's the same thing. Everything has to be in steps. They rushed ahead of the process and now they will be punished for it. They will probably lose their liquor license and stuff like that. And uh, um, they will peel it and stuff like that. But it was right there for everyone. So that, that, that was a mess. And that's sad to see for the industry. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, Victor, you were asked at a lot of these national conferences, kind of give an overview of the state of the uh, the tribal casino uh, industry in general, and also uh, how much, what kind of level of unity there is among, you know, there's so many different tribes. But, you know, given that you talked about how they're sovereign nations, um, first of all, how, how unified are they right these days? And also how unified 
do they need to be? What what is the what are the benefits um, to these to these sovereign uh, nations if if they have more cooperation with each other? How do they come out ahead with that? Well, you know, I think the tribes are more unified than ever. You know, situations like this um, is when the tribes shine the best. They know how to unify. Our parents, our great great grandparents suffered, and we're very very aware of that suffering, and we carry that with us. And that's not just a a slogan or a you know a, an expression, a barroom expression. It's, it's very true. So. You know, in desperate times, we know how unity, we ought to be unity. We know what it's like to be poor. We know what it's like to be at the bottom of the barrel. So, you know, for the tribes, it, it's provided unity. It's been really quite amazing. Uh, you see it in Oklahoma. Uh, you see it so far in California. You see it in Washington. The tribes are working together, sharing best practices, and everything that works in one place will be spread very quickly to the other. You know, and kind of time back. That's why we're all waiting on poker yet. You know, how do you do poker? How do you do poker safely? You know, so the tribes, the tribes are, you know, these type of things bring them together, you know, uh, even more than success. You know, success unites, but nothing like nothing like being in a, a sinking boat to unite a bunch of people to, to row in the same direction. Right. Yeah, yeah, I want to throw a bonus question. That's Victor. Uh, you, you mentioned to me once that you played in a, a Jersey Shore band back in the day. Uh, I'm curious uh, what, the, what the band was, uh, you know, what the name of it was, where did you play, what instrument did you play, and how much success did you guys have? Wow. Um, well, I played from uh, 1987 to 1989 in a band called James Dealey and the Valiants. Uh, we lived on LBI. Uh, it was a Jersey Shore band. We played, gosh, from everywhere from Boston down to Washington, but we were based out of LBI, mostly the Jersey Shore, uh, Stone Pony, uh, Catch the Tide, Joe Pops, Brighton Bar. Uh, every, you know, we used to play in the village a lot. We used to play a whole bunch in the village and stuff. So uh, I play guitar, I play lead guitar, I still play guitar. Actually, in the back, you can see uh, I have a Gretsch uh, 6120 back there. And if I turn the light on that closet, you would see it filled with guitars too. So I still, I still play. Actually, I still play. I have a uh, an R and B band, and going back into gaming, we're waiting to see when we can start playing again too. You know, mm-hmm. so I've been doing that for seventeen years, eighteen years, a steady gig, uh, second Thursday of every month. Hopefully, we'll start playing again back in August. I hope maybe September, depending on how this all goes. You know, but yeah, you know, there there are a lot of musicians in this in, in this industry. There are a lot of people who play. People like Gary Green, uh, you know, the keyboard player from uh, Angel. Remember Angel from the '70s? He's a game designer. One of the keyboard players for uh, Todd Rundgren's Utopia is a, a, a music designer for slot machines and stuff like that. So, everyone, there's a secret musical society in the gaming industry too. So uh, we all get together in our little covens every once in a while and uh, jam. But you so, you never you never had one of those nights at the Stone Pony where uh, where Springsteen showed up and joined you on stage that you don't have one of those stories. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, Bruce didn't, but but we recorded uh, two albums at, at his uh, bass player's recording studio, Gary Talent. Oh, nice! And uh, so we got to know Gary and and uh, uh, some of the other guys pretty well. And uh, but you know, listen, I loved playing in New Jersey. Uh, no place that I've ever been was there more of a fraternity and a, a, a brotherhood and sisterhood. And it was probably one of the most supportive scenes I'd ever been in my life. It was wonderful. You know, they're very, you know, what I used to say is that when I came back home to California was that when you go to on stage in New Jersey, 
people were like going, they're rooting for you. They're like going, God, I hope these guys are good. And when you go on stage in Hollywood, people stand there and like go, oh, these guys are going to suck. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> so it's a different mentality. You know, those guys were, they were in your corner, man. When you had them in your corner, boy, you had, you had some loyal friends. They would come in the, in the winter and the snow and the empty Jersey shore. They would be there, man. So the Jersey audiences are the best, no doubt about it. Great stuff. All right. Well, it's been uh, it's been great talking to you, Victor. Uh, thank you so much for for joining us on on Gamble On, and uh, hopefully we'll have good news about uh, casino reopenings and all that sort of stuff soon. And uh, just uh, stay safe and healthy until then. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye bye. Two men, two men, ten thousand dollars. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. We promised last week that we would be placing a couple of bets this week, uh, given that a made-for-TV and, more to the point, made-for-betting golf event will air this holiday Sunday. So we're going to live up to that promise. Uh, As we continue to wait on $990 worth of futures bets that are on hold, including the Cam Newton bet that we thought would be graded by now, uh, we come into this week up by $214, and we will each place one bet on the competition known as The Match. Uh, And John, you're up first. Yeah, I, I, I didn't look closely enough, but uh, I think if you could find a longest drive bet, uh, I would take Phil. Um, it, there is one in the uh, I'm in a DraftKings media pool again uh, this week, <laughs> risking right. my uh, fame and fortune, but uh, or most importantly, my reputation. And I'll take <laughs> Phil on that because you don't have to drive in the fairway. A lot of times a longest drive, uh, like in a in a, a, a some sort of a, a celebrity tournament or whatever, you have to land in the fairway to qualify here. You don't. Hmm. Phil doesn't like fairways, so um, <laughs> he's a big hitter. So I would take that, but I didn't see that uh, actually in my perusing. So okay. uh, instead, you know, this is really Tiger's course, literally. Um, but I would not be surprised if a 49-year-old Phil has outworked him for this. And he's almost 50 now, too. Um, plus, I like Phil's partner Tom Brady a little more than Tom Peyton Manning. They're they're um, similar quality, like eight handicap golfers. Um, but I like Brady more in the big spot on the back nine. So give me 100 to win 160 on that team winning that thing. All right. It goes for the upset pick. Yeah. I was uh, I was not expecting that. But, uh, you you know, you, you got it right the last time Tiger and Phil did this. You took Phil and it paid off. So, uh, all right, sticking with it. So um, I looked at the various props available and FanDuel is offering closest to the pin after tee shot for holes 4, 8, 12, and 16. So I assumed that those were probably par threes and it would be easy to measure closest to the pin, but uh, nope, I looked up Shadow Creek and hole four is a par five. Um, So it's basically who has the longest drive. Uh, They offer bets between Tiger and Phil, uh, between Brady and Manning, or between all four. So Tiger versus Phil, Tiger is minus 116 and Phil is minus 102. All four of them, Tiger is plus 125. Is there really much chance Brady or Manning is is out driving the pros on a big par five? Uh, I, I doubt it. So to me, if I'm going to take Tiger, which, you know, that might may or may not be the right choice between Tiger and Phil, but that's where I'm going. If I'm going to take him, clearly plus 125 is better value on him to beat all three of the other golfers rather than minus 116 just to beat Mickelson. So, you know, I'm no golf expert. I'm no great golf better, but this seems a good price and it'll make viewing fun for me for a few minutes. Uh, And as a non-golf guy, 
I, I don't see much fun about this event other than the betting opportunities. <laughs> to me, this thing is really all about being made for betting. So anyway, let's do $60 on Tiger closest to the pin off the fourth hole tee shot. It'll win us 75 bucks if he comes through. Yeah, I'll give a tip to you and other non-golfing fans who are dying to watch some kind of a sporting event. Uh, if you want, you just stay in for the back nine. Well, you watch the fourth hole, but everybody right. else you just show up for the back nine because it's going to be alternate shot. So there's going to be awkward spots for, you know, both quarterbacks where they really need to come through in the clutch. And I think that's going to be particularly interesting. So uh, uh, honestly, the Rory McIlroy fiasco with Ricky Fowler last weekend was really boring. And I, I, I watch golf every week. I'm in a right. golf pool and it was boring, but the back nine was a little better. So that would be my TV watching tip is unless you're betting on the fourth hole, you can probably skip the front nine, <laughs> but the back nine, it could be kind of intriguing, uh, especially, I don't know if they're going to do any trash talking, but they might. And uh, so that could be entertaining. All right. I, li- I like that tip. So I'm going to tune in for hole four, plan a nap and then, uh, and then <laughs> catch go. the back nine. All right. Well, that'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Victor Rocha. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And with that, John, you get the final word. Please take us out. Yeah, I mean, Eric, this shocks me to say it. As I'm no fashionista, obviously, but um, my fellow people of North Jersey and really all over, you know, raise your face masking game. I mean, we know <laughs> this effort is so important, literally saving lives, but mm-hmm. almost everyone I see in my rare forays into the wild these days uh, has these dismal blank white masks. I mean, how about celebrating and showing off your style? I mean, I currently rock a homemade mask that made by a family member with uh, baseballs as a theme. It's a, it's something, you know, and I ordered a set of three Mets logo masks a couple of weeks ago. They won't arrive for a few more weeks, but at least I'm trying, you know? I mean, for all the billions that the Kardashian family has made, if they're leading an effort on this, I haven't heard about it, so they're not succeeding to the overall public. Or how about like American flag-like masks or bald eagles or kittens or puppies? I mean, something that makes the other person smile. I mean, that, that's kind of the point. You don't want to be in that store, you know, shopping for groceries or whatever. You see other people, you don't want to get near them. But if, you, if they have something fun or friendly, you know, on their mask, it, it kind of lifts the mood a bit. And I'm, I'm kind of shocked that I'm uh, apparently going to have to lead the American people into this, <laughs> into this uh, effort. But uh, I'm, I'm ready to do it. So uh, with that, uh, you know, until next time, everybody, gamble on. <laughs>